Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency Welcome radio to a public affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. At the end of September, while Congress was focused on a potential government shutdown, the farm bill that directs nearly $1 trillion in federal spending expired. Before the end of the year, Congress is scheduled to pass a new farm bill. What this bill includes and doesn't include will determine the next five years of policy and funding for climate resilience, conservation, supplemental nutrition assistance, farm animal welfare, land access, crop insurance, and much, much more. In short, Congress is working on what the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition calls, quote, one piece of legislation that touches everything from the seed to the plate. Here today to tell us more about the issues in current farm bill debates are two writers for Civil Eats, a daily online news source for critical thought about the American food system. Lisa Held is Civil Eats senior staff reporter. She has also reported since 2015 on agriculture and the food system for The Guardian, The Washington Post, and Mother Jones. Welcome to A Public Affair, Lisa. Thanks, Douglas. I'm glad to be here. And we also have with us Wendy Johnson, who is owner and operator of Joya Food and Fiber Farm, a diverse perennial-based farm in northern Iowa. She's also a spokesperson for Climate Land Leaders, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. Her editorial, Farmers Want Climate Resilience, but GOP lawmakers want to redirect billions in conservation funds, recently appeared in Civil Eats magazine. Wendy is joining us today from her combine out in the fields in Iowa. Welcome to A Public Affair, Wendy. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question for my guests about the Farm Bill or perspectives on the current state of U.S. agriculture you'd like to share, I know we have many folks out in Wisconsin's rural communities who listen to the program. Please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, and join the conversation. So, Lisa, we're going to start with the basics for everybody today. What is this thing called the Farm Bill and why is it so important for agriculture and food systems in the U.S. and really around the world? Sure. Uh, so the Farm Bill um, is something that I think a lot of people kind of know exists, but then, you know, it's it's just so big. It's hard to wrap your head around um, all the different components. So it's an it's what's called an omnibus bill, um, which is basically a legislative package um, that typically is considered by Congress and then passed every five years. Although uh, it often takes longer, which I'm sure we'll get into yeah. at some point. Um, but basically, the the bill is a a package of of um, legislation that that determines how the government spends money in the food system. Um, and I think it's important to um, point out that it is a spending bill. So it's not a regulatory bill like the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act. There there are components that make their way into the bill that that sometimes have 
a component that seems a little regulatory, but mostly it's the government saying this is how and where we're going to spend money on food and agriculture. And so the bill itself is divided into different sections called titles. And the, the biggest of those titles that gets the most funding is SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. That accounts for about three quarters of the spending in the Farm Bill. And then after SNAP, or just nutrition programs, it's, it's often referred to because there are other small programs in there as well, there are kind of three big programs or titles that, that I usually kind of put together because they're about the same size. They each, uh, each account for about 8% of spending. So they're crop insurance, commodity programs, which are essentially subsidies paid to growers of commodity crops like corn, soy, wheat, and cotton, and then conservation programs, which pay farmers to implement uh, environmentally friendly practices on their farms. And so, so we've got SNAPs, about three quarters. Those three, three titles make up about 24%. And then there's 1% left, which um, is, sounds small, but considering we're talking about you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, it, it actually encompasses quite a bit. Um, so in that 1%, there are many other titles like credit, trade, horticulture, which include, includes fruits and vegetables, uh, forestry, local food programs, urban farming, really a ton that uh, gets lumped into that tiny, tiny sliver uh, of funding. Um, and so that basically that's the, the farm bill um, broadly fits into all those categories. And then um, every five years, the, the Senate Agriculture Committee and the House Agriculture Committee uh, work on their versions of the bill. They negotiate until they can come to some sort of um, agreement and, you know, hopefully uh, they, they do come to an agreement and, and it, it gets passed and reauthorized for the following five years. Thanks for that great overview. And um, from your perspective as a journalist, what uh, what do you think it's most important that people understand about the far-reaching consequences of this spending? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it, it definitely impacts... Um, I, it really is one of the main factors that impacts how we grow food in this country and also, um, you know, who can access food. So because SNAP is such a, a big piece, um, you know, who is eligible for um, assistance when, you know, their family can't afford enough food for, for the household really is impacted by, by this legislation in major ways. And then how we grow food, um, and and you know the the percentage of people who are farming in this country is very small now, so it can seem I think like oh okay it only impacts farmers and maybe it doesn't it doesn't impact you if you're not farming, but I mean everybody eats right, and um, how we farm impacts the quality of the food that makes it to your table. It impacts. Um, Certainly climate, which I think we'll get into more, um, you know, how we grow food, not only actually is a source of greenhouse gas emissions, um, but also uh, lots of other environmental impacts. So um, whether or not our waterways are polluted, whether we have clean drinking water, whether we have clean air to breathe, so many of these things are tied to how we grow food. Um, and and whether, you know, as as the climate crisis intensifies whether or not we have enough food and we have resilient farms that are able to continue producing food for uh, the population, really.
Absolutely. And I want to make sure we have time in a little while to talk more about SNAP and the contentious nature of it right now in the current debates around the bill. But you just set up such a wonderful transition uh, for Wendy's work in writing about climate resilience. And so we're going to transition to you, Wendy Johnson, there in Iowa. You live in the middle of the Corn Belt, which you've written about. Talk about how farm bill policies and funding support for the monocultures of corn and soybeans we see throughout the Midwest um, create ecological and community consequences. What do you see there on the ground about the support, the federal support in items like the Farm Bill for monocultures of corn and soybeans? So Lisa had mentioned earlier there, there's, there's less and less farmers. And I think in Iowa, I think less than 4% of the population are farmers today, where probably 50 or 60 years ago, it was a much larger number. Um, the not, I don't want to go back into history too much, but you know, we went through the an 80s farm crisis and a lot of things changed. We did lose a large number of farmers and this really movement of production and efficiency was just um, scaled. So um, we are currently in a, in a place I, I farm also conventionally corn and soybeans on our family farm. And <clears throat> I can simply harvest a corn crop, bring it to the ethanol plant that's two miles down the road. Um, I deliver it. I get a check. It's a very easy and simple process. Um, the infrastructure is all laid out. And the protections are there, such as crop insurance and commodity programs that are within the Farm Bill that will help me no matter if I have a crop failure or if I, the price of that crop falls less than what that price was set at through the commodity programs. Um, I am fully protected. Now, um, I'm also an organic farmer, so we have crop rotations and crop rotations outside the corn and soybeans might include small grains, such as oats, and perennial pastures for grazing our livestock. Those, those, are those uh, crop rotations outside of corn, corn and soybeans are not protected. We don't have programs um, currently that exist within the Farm Bill to help, um, one, create the infrastructure for things outside the corn and soybeans here in Iowa, but also for uh, price protection and crop insurance. So um, actually, we're, whenever I meet with my crop insurance agent every year, we always talk about small grains, and they say the same thing every time. Well, it's really not worth it to get it. It's just not, it's not going to pay out. So um, those kinds of if you want to do anything outside of corn and soybeans, it's just, as a farmer, it's, it's, you, the risk is all put on yourself. And um, that's a hard pill to swallow as farming is just a high risk uh, industry in itself. So for the, uh, I grow some Kernza, for example. There's, I grow oats, I grow rye. There isn't the infrastructure available um, currently, I to take in those crops. I can't just go a couple miles down the road to deliver those those um, grains when I harvest them. I either have to store them or I have to deliver them um, 
up to 150 miles sometimes. And once uh, I might get that grain to that particular mill, you know, we're competing with Canada, for example, for our small grains here in the upper Midwest. Um, those grains might get rejected once they get there. We don't have the ag research behind it also in small, in small grains for um, yield, um, aflatoxin or climate kind of issues, too, too much rain, too dry. I mean, there are the ag research and the seed uh, research behind that has not caught up to what it is with corn and soybeans, for example. So that is where I also see the, the Farm Bill as assisting in some of that catching up so that it's a more level playing field than currently it's just supporting the same system over and over and over. And meanwhile, we're losing the ability and access for new farmers and beginning farmers to access land because land's just becoming much too expensive to afford. That's farmer and writer Wendy Johnson here on A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. We're talking today also with Lisa Held, reporter for Civil Eats magazine, and we're talking about the upcoming farm bill in Congress. If you'd like to join the conversation, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. If you have a question, perspective, story to share about all the ways that political decisions affect our food system and agriculture here in the upper Midwest and far beyond as well. So again, the number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. Lisa, I'm going to go back to you now to talk a little bit more about farming and the climate crisis, um, which you mentioned at the top of the show. And then we'll hear from Wendy about her perspective in particular, that she's written a lot about, about what's happening there in Iowa for farmers and the climate. In what ways, Lisa, does agriculture contribute to the climate crisis, um, and how might it also be part of the solution? Sure. Uh, so agriculture is a source of greenhouse gas emissions, like other industries, um, primarily from uh, nitrous oxide, which is um, from nitrogen applied to to fields, um, methane from animal agriculture, um, and then just the use of, of fossil fuels uh, within the whole system, um, just as you know, in other industries. Um, I think, as you mentioned, you know, the agriculture is unique because it is also um, this incredible tool for sequestering carbon. Um, and and also so many other environmental uh, benefits and and it really comes down to how how we farm right and and we have to farm because we have to feed ourselves so it's a necessary um, ne such a necessary industry um, and the farm bill um, it, it's really interesting because there's so many parts I, I mean in in reality the entire farm bill is is contributing to whether or not the system um, is you know climate positive or or you know produces more emissions or less emissions because the way we farm overall um, impacts that. But there are kind of places within the farm bill that are really critical. And I think uh, Wendy already started to talk about crop insurance, which is huge. Um, and you know what one really interesting thing is in the last farm bill, crop insurance for the first time um, spending on crop insurance started outpacing spending in commodity programs. 
because they're, you know, as climate change gets worse, farmers are losing more crops to drought, to flooding, uh, to all these extreme weather events. And, um, you know, there's a number that came out from EWG this year that uh, in 20, I want to get this right. That's the Environmental Working Group? Yes, the Environmental Working Group, sorry. Uh, in, in D.C., everyone speaks in acronyms, and I, I get caught up in that sometimes. <laughs> no worries. Um, <laughs> in, in 2022, taxpayers uh, paid $19 billion um, in crop insurance uh, costs because of weather-related losses, and that's compared to less than $3 billion in 2001. So you see over 20 years how the costs of crop insurance are rising, and at the same time, um, we had this really great story uh, written by my colleague, Gray Moran, recently that looked at how crop insurance programs through the Farm Bill are basically disincentivizing climate resilient practices. Um, some of the things Wendy does, like she was saying, not only are they not, they don't fit into the programs, but actually you, you can ruin your chance at getting uh, crop insurance if you use practices that don't check the box, these sort of typical row crop systems, for instance, like intercropping, if you want to plant more than one thing, which can really like um, create diversity and resilience and, and build soil health. Um, and you could, you won't be eligible for crop insurance um, if, if you do that. So there are some proposals now um, that are looking to change that in the farm bill. And um, it's a, I think it'll be hard to make those changes, but there, there is some energy around that. Um, and then the other big thing is uh, in the conservation programs, there's there's been a big push for trying to make uh, programs that farmers use like um, EQIP, which is the Environmental Quality Incentive Program. That's a really popular one. Um, it pays for lots of different things. And what people want is to see more of the funding go to practices that uh, specifically have a climate benefit. And so there's a list that uh, USDA has that they say, these are the ones that we know measurably have an impact. And so more of the money should go there. And um, there is there is some extra money right now that came through the Inflation Reduction Act that is supposed to be going to those practices. And uh, lawmakers have been, uh, some some lawmakers have been trying to move it and, and put it into commodity programs. And that's a big uh, contentious kind of issue right now on the hill so we're, we're going to see what happens but but i think those are like right now to me the crop insurance and the conservation programs are the biggest conversations happening um, around climate and the farm bill thanks for that great overview lisa and uh, i definitely want to talk more about the prospects for the bill and what's happening uh, through the fall here as we go. But um, let's stay on the ground with climate issues there in particular and see and hear from you, Wendy, about your first-person perspective, practitioner's perspective, about the ways that that lack of support with crop insurance um, for climate-friendly practices, we'll call them broadly, uh, are impacting you as a farmer or other farms in your area. And tell us a little bit more. You write so evocatively about how the climate crisis is impacting farmers there in Iowa. Um, tell us more. So I'm going to give kind of an embarrassing example this fall. Um, you know, we are having kind of, we're having erratic weather uh, due to climate change and uh, highly variable. Um, in the last three years, we've had 
we're climbing into some major drought. I think our uh, part of um, eastern Iowa, uh, specifically in northeast, is under extreme drought conditions even today. And, um, you know, if we think back even five or six years ago, we were having extreme flooding. So it's kind of this, it's not just regular flooding and regular drought. It's, it's more in these really extreme um, areas. So this fall, um, early October, actually, we were having 95-degree days for about a week, which is pretty unusual here in northern Iowa at that time of year. And um, we also were, the winds were coming around 30 to 40 miles per hour from the south, very dry and hot um, winds. Perfect conditions uh, with lands full of dry, um, dry and, and, and dead uh, material all around, um, a fire started. Um, and so fire, fires that come out of combines, combines get very hot, you know, especially when the ambient temperature is quite hot and the winds are blowing um, pretty strongly and are dry. Um, I started a field fire. Um, it was accident, but it, it happened. The engine area got too hot, probably something smoldering fell on the ground. First time it had ever happened to me. I never thought <laughs> something like that would happen to me. And, and the fire, um, because the wind was so strong, it just started so quickly and burned uh, through the field of soybeans. Now, if it had been in corn, I think it would have been a much bigger deal. Um, luckily, uh, fire departments came out and were able to, to, to get it out. It was really scary, and I don't see that as being one of the first or last, you know, uh, events to happen. I mean, we've had, um, they say that tornadoes are not connected to climate change, um, but to have temperatures, high temperatures in December a couple of years ago um, with, I think we're in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Um, 70 degrees in December with, with tornadoes, um, it's very, very, very unusual, um, as well as kind of this, those extremes, like I said, of, of flooding and of, of drought, um, kind of back to back. And without some of the resiliency practices, um, um, you know, I have this, a farm that is highly resilient to some of these extremes. And I can see how it, they're basically, it's a perennial farm. So it's perennial forages, it's agroforestry, it's, um, it's grazing livestock, and, and growing kernza. And it's, um, it's highly resilient compared to some of the very, um, what I call kind of brittle practices um, of just, you know, corn on corn on corn or corn and soybeans, kind of is less um, um, resilient and less um, diverse. Um, and so when we have some of these perennial practices on the ground um, that are actually growing food for the people that are in our region and community, it, it is, it's, it's just much more resilient in nature because it's highly diverse. And our practices are um, to work with nature. And 
I, I get to see firsthand, I guess, this very, um, what, what isn't working and what is working. Um, but what isn't working is highly protected by the Farm Bill currently. And I, and I, and I start to think about, gosh, it seems like there's a lot of taxpayers' dollars that are going towards something that's protecting something that's not really working right now, currently, um, specifically with these climate extremes. And there's a cost to that. And um, I think that's what I'm trying to share with people is that there's a cost to the practices that we currently see across our landscape and that we should probably be rethinking where those dollars should be going and, and what are they protecting and, and, and how important food is um, to us. I mean, we're all eaters, like Lisa said. We all should be concerned at, at, in some way. But how does it personally affect you, you know, um, is what we're trying to make that connection to. Absolutely. And you just made such a clear connection also to the way politics shapes what's happening there. Like you said, what it's uh, supporting and what it's not supporting in terms of what's working climate wise, ecologically wise and for the sustainability of farms as well. So thanks for that um, first person story, Wendy. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with farmer and writer Wendy Johnson and reporter Lisa Held. Both of them have written recently about the prospects for the U.S. Farm Bill in Congress for the magazine Civil Eats. We're talking about that upcoming Farm Bill our farm bill in process maybe is a better way to describe it. Sometimes in process, sometimes not in process. Um, but uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you have perspectives on what the U.S. government should support in terms of food systems and agriculture, give us a call. Join the conversation at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Or just a story to share uh, in light of what uh, Wendy Johnson is talking about is happening on her landscape, on her farm there in Iowa. We're going to turn towards something else I know you both have written about and care about a lot, which is uh, animal welfare, animal husbandry, something a lot of people in I know listening here today care about as well. Lisa, you've written on animal welfare and organic standards in the farm bell process in particular, and we'd love to hear from you too, Wendy, about your perspectives as a farmer on this as well. But we'll start with you, Lisa. Tell us more about the issue and what's at stake in the debates surrounding animal welfare, organic standards, and the farm bill. Um, so that's an interesting question. I, you know, when you think about the farm bill, typically animal welfare is is not something that I that I think about a lot and not something that that comes up. Um, when when you say um, the organic standards, um, are you talking about the organic livestock and poultry standards? Yes. That, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. So yeah, those the, those are very interesting. They're they're not um, really tied to the farm bill. That they're sort of their own uh, standards that have been um, in the works at the USDA for a very long time, more than a decade, and actually were just uh, finalized. Um, I want to say last week. Mm -hmm. Actually, <laughs> I'm like, well, when was that? Yeah, it was just last week. Um, but I guess now that I think about it, there is a farm bill link. So um, you know, the, the, this is a set of standards that would essentially bring what the way that it's described is like when you think of organic, 
agriculture and how animals would be raised in organic systems. You know, you think about animals who have access to the outdoors, who are able to exhibit uh, their animal behaviors. And, and there, there was kind of some loopholes written into the organic standards where um, as organic got bigger and more industrialized in some places, um, companies were able to uh, take advantage of those loopholes and do things like raise chickens completely indoors and put a little uh, tiny door that, uh, you know, would allow it, uh, the chickens to go outside onto a concrete slab and and then call that outdoor access, things like that. So so the standards are, are really held as, as fixing a lot of those issues and pretty much the entire organic industry um, has rallied behind them and is very excited by the fact that they have been finalized uh, finally. And the, the Farm Bill link is that there, um, well, there, there has, has been some um, contentious kind of debates happening in the background about, about this, these rules and um, some attempts by a, a couple lawmakers to stop them um, by getting amendments um, put, put in to stop the USDA work on, on these standards. I think, now I'm, Douglas, I, I, forgive me, I'm forgetting I think the amendments that were introduced to stop the work were actually on the appropriations bills that are going through right now, not the farm bill. So but, related um, to the budget, the ongoing yeah, kind of standoff around the budget and government shutdown. Oh. Yeah, but it's all kind of happening at the same time yeah. and things like that, like riders, they, they certainly, you know, if they didn't get into the budget bills, I'm sure if someone really wanted to, to try to get it, so you know, attached to something else, um, they could try to um, put it into the farm bill. But but I do think the fact that um, USDA just finalized amidst all of, all of that kind of uh, this push to, to potentially sabotage the rules at the last minute, uh, the fact that USDA went ahead and, and finalized them um, fairly quickly after that happened, it kind of sends a signal, I think, to lawmakers that this issue is um, maybe finalized, but I, I don't want to say that with too much uh, confidence because it has been kind of a lot of back and forth for a long time. Um, but in short, kind of, sorry, Lisa, what you're saying is essentially the organic, as people may understand it in relation to animal agriculture, has been secured in terms of uh, practices that support animals realizing their innate tendencies, free range, lack of antibiotics, those kinds of things. Mostly, yeah. I, I think some people would disagree with little parts of that, but in general, I think everyone, you know, farmers and other advocates for organic agriculture would say that this is a major step forward in that direction, if not kind of um, the issue has been, been solved. Uh -huh. um, Great. Uh, Wendy, uh, let's turn to you as somebody who uh, practices animal husbandry. Um, are there ways that the Farm Bill or other federal uh, supports or legislation could help support uh, the kind of regenerative farming practices that you are using there in terms of animal agriculture? What would you like to see more support for? Well, there's, um, I guess I'm going to bring it back down to land access and, 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 and new and beginning farmers. Um, Many of them are growing food for their communities, and um, they are 
most of them are small to mid-scale, so they're not putting animals in large confined um, animal feeding operation units. And so, and whether they have, you know, animal welfare certifications um, or not, they're, they're, they're small to mid-scale, so they're not, you know, compacting animals altogether and um, many times they're selling direct to consumers so most of those consumers are not wanting um, antibiotics or hormones in their in their meats um, and so I for that broader question of how the farm bill can help is um, really getting more farmers on the land is I think a goal that is both um, on both sides, uh, it's a it's a bipartisan issue, and that everyone can agree on. Um, we need more farmers, um, plain and simple. And um, currently, the current system and, and farm bill is really um, not allowing more farmers to to uh, exist. Uh, property values are very high. They're based on um, here in Iowa, at least, they're based on corn suitability ratings. And so um, it's very difficult for a beginning farmer or an emerging farmer to purchase land to start a farm. Um, in addition, they have to, specifically around urban areas, um, they also have to compete with um, development prices of, of, of real estate. And so there are, if we really want to be this resilient and robust um, food-centric um, community of, um, that we live in these urban centers and even in the rural areas, we just need a simple focus on land access and, and food farming, um, especially for new and emerging farmers. Now, back to the um, welfare piece, I, I'm, I'm not quite clear on, I'm, I'm not sure what welfare standards, uh, or if any, are within the Farm Bill. Um, but I know that uh, we're animal welfare approved through a greener world. It's a third-party certification. And um, the simple, I mean, it's pretty simple. <laughs> we have to go through a lot of uh, paperwork to show that we are humane um, when our counterparts, um, you know, I have neighbors that have these capable buildings. They don't have to show any paperwork. They just... But they just do, and, and um, so we go through an auditing process. I don't think they do, um, but uh, to have this certification, and this, the simplest way to describe it is we let animals do what they innately want to do, and uh, they live outside. It's so simple. It doesn't seem that difficult, um, but the way that, you know, uh, food at least animal proteins are produced today in large quantities are um, are not like that. So I don't know if I answered that question very well, Douglas, but. Yeah, Lisa, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just, I, I wanted to add to that because it made me think um, about, there, there's this whole part of the farm bill that I think, you know, it's not tied to animal welfare, but it, it's tied to what Wendy's saying, which is a lot of, um, farmers who are raising livestock um, out, outdoors, on pasture, on smaller, more diversified farms, 
um, are selling into regional markets rather than, you know, within a Tyson supply chain or, or something like that. So um, the, the Farm Bill does have all of these programs that are um, moving some money into regional uh, building back regional systems. And the last Farm Bill in 2018 actually um, made quite a few gains in, in that area. It established the local agriculture market program, um, which I think has, has put a lot of money into like smaller meat processing plants and, um, you know, growing kind of um, local grain economies around the country. And, and so there's this kind of, it's not, you know, it's not an animal welfare, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, provision per se, but, you know, it's supporting farms that are, are raising animals in this way that people would, would I think you know, uniformly agree are, you know, includes welfare standards. And um, this year there's, there are a lot of um, proposals to continue expanding that, that are on the table right now. There's um, one marker bill that uh, Senator uh, John Fetterman of Pennsylvania introduced that would, for example, um, essentially require the USDA when it purchases food for things like school meals or um, food aid to actually spend a certain percentage of its meat uh, dollars on buying from small and medium-sized uh, meat businesses rather than only purchasing from the you know big four meat mm -hmm. companies. So things like that, if they get into the farm bill, could kind of shift um, some of the, the dollars away from these big companies and the consolidated systems that uh, are raising animals in the way Wendy described in these indoor systems and towards the smaller, more uh, regionalized producers. Absolutely. Those are both uh, really great connections that both of you shared there, uh, talking about access and and incentivizing small and regional producers. And Lisa, um, farm access to farm credit and, and other kinds of programs that encourage access to land. Um, also, I know Civil East has paid attention to their impacts on BIPOC farmers, especially, and urban farmers. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the ways that the Farm Bill kind of distributes money to help farmers get started or not? Yeah, so there is a credit title. Um, I I have not done a ton of reporting recently on on that title, so I I don't want to um, you know talk too much about something that I'm I'm not really deeply engaged in. Um, but I mean, the credit title does set a lot of rules about um, how the USDA uh, you know gives farm loans and and who they give that money to, and there there's definitely been conversations around kind of similar to what I was just saying, basically ensuring that more of those dollars are accessible to smaller producers, including, you know, producers who historically have been discriminated against by the agency. And, you know, that they're uh, black and, and other indigenous producers, women have, you know, through the years, um, really been shut out of funding at the USDA. And, um, that the agency has tried, you know, made different efforts to try to um, correct some of that. But I think there is still plenty of room in the Farm Bill to create programs that are more accessible for more kinds of farmers so that that those farm loans are not only going to um, large commodity growers. 
You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with writer Lisa Held, reporter for Civil Eats magazine, and Wendy Johnson, Iowa farmer and writer and contributor to Civil Eats as well. We're talking about the upcoming farm bill in Congress and all the many aspects of food systems and agriculture that that bill and uh, federal farm and food policy ties to the ways that uh, federal policy impacts the agricultural landscape here in the upper Midwest and everywhere. If you'd like to join the conversation, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. There's still time to call in with a question or perspective. I want to make sure in the time we have left that we return to that issue of SNAP benefits, which you talked about at the top, Lisa, as being such a big chump chunk of farm bill spending and provisions Tell us a little bit more um, about the policy landscape with SNAP funding right now. I know it seems to have gotten super complicated lately, um, but uh, what's at stake here for supplemental nutrition assistance with this upcoming farm bill process? Sure. There's always a little bit of a debate, at least, around uh, SNAP funding, but this time around, uh, the conversation has gotten very contentious, and um, you know it's it's basically coming from the um, group of far right Republicans in the House that want to restrict SNAP benefits in new ways. Whether that it, it's mostly you know floating proposals to restrict eligibility in new ways. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard about different work requirements that have been proposed in the past and um, age limits, things like that. And um, the, the reality is the this group of lawmakers, it's a small group, um, they, they are sort of driving that push, but most policymakers in, in DC kind of want to leave SNAP the way it is, um, but the problem is if it gets held up, then it can hold up the whole farm bill. And um, in the spring, some of the more um, moderate Republicans, like um, the House Agriculture Chair G.T. Thompson from Pennsylvania, um, who is also a Republican, he he was kind of leaning towards we're going to leave SNAP alone and we're going to get this farm bill through. And now his tune seems to have changed quite a bit. Um, obviously, the, the events of the past few months, we've just seen that the House is kind of in chaos and is unable to move almost anything forward um, because of the debates between the sort of more moderate and conservative Republicans in the House. So the, this essentially SNAP benefits are getting caught up in that, um, that situation, and that could hold up the entire farm bill process because the Senate, which is controlled by Democrats, is not going to agree to any cuts to SNAP. Um, and so that's going to make getting the bill through very tricky. Um, and I mean, I think it's really it's a really important issue at this moment in time. You know, the, the USDA just released their household uh, food security report for 2022 uh, just last week. And the numbers are not good. Um, they reported a 12.8 percent overall food insecurity rate. So 17 million households in the U.S. facing food insecurity last year. And that was up from 10 percent in 2021 and up from 2020 when the pandemic started. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that 
there were additional supports provided during uh, the first two years of the pandemic that have gone away. And uh, some of the higher prices that we've seen for, for food have not uh, kept pace with, with those extra supports going away. So um, people are, are struggling and there seems to be a need for, um, for nutrition assistance. And so whatever happens, it's definitely gonna have an impact on you know, families in this country who are struggling to, to feed their children. And just to underline that a little bit, Lisa, it's so important, and thank you for bringing it up. Um, what's the scope of this program? Can you give us a broad sense of, you know, how many people rely on SNAP benefits for buying basic food items and produce in a lot of places uh, has become incentivized? You know, a lot of people rely on this program to get produce that they otherwise wouldn't be able to buy. Yeah, yeah, it, it's about 40 million, um, 40 million um, a year, Americans a year rely on, on SNAP benefits. So it's a, a huge number. And actually, it's interesting you bring up produce because one program in the Farm Bill that has had a lot of bipartisan support in the past, and, and I'll be interested to see what happens with it this year, is called, um, it's another weird acronym, it's, it's referred to as GUSNIP. I'm not even going to tell you what it stands okay. for. It's <laughs> too long. But um, it, it's gotten a lot of support in the past because it, it essentially um, links um, local regional agriculture and support for farmers growing fruits and vegetables to um, the need for food assistance. And so provides, you know, somebody on SNAP benefits, essentially they can double the value of um, that benefit if they're spending the money directly with a produce grower in their community. And so then the farmer gets extra dollars um, the family that's struggling gets extra healthy food. And that, that program has been really popular and there's a lot of proposals to expand it. Um, but, you know, at this point, I'm not sure uh, how successful those will be. Yeah, I think we'll have to, to wait and see here. And I want to kind of foreground uh, both of your perspectives on what should be in this bill. And maybe we won't try to get lost in the weeds too much about what's actually going to happen with the political process with the farm bill and the time we have left. As as you mentioned, Lisa, you know, the, the political climate in Congress is so unstable. But you also mentioned earlier that uh, these bills sometimes uh, take many, many months to, to make it through, right? Um, so what I've read anyway, that it's looking like many people are saying that this won't happen yet this fall, that the Farm Bill gets passed. But um, I think we'll put our focus here the rest of our time on what, if it does happen and when it does happen, what you both think is really important that people know uh, to advocate for, what you think should be in that bill. So Wendy, we'll go back to you. I'd love for you to share your vision, your sort of elevator speech about what this next farm bill should include and do for farmers and the American food system as a whole. That is such a huge question to do in this small elevator speech, but I will try. Um, so just per the local foods discussion that we just had, um, that would be uh, a top priority is, um, you know, we, we subsidize of these, you know, corn and soybeans, the top commodities, the top five commodities, including rice, peanuts, and cotton, which are predominantly grown in the South. And uh, really what we could be doing also um, is subsidizing uh, local foods so that more people 
um, across all different types of economic um, situations can afford the food that is um, grown just in their backyards locally uh, and regionally to support also those farmers that are growing food just in their communities. It's less, less infrastructure is required, less um, transportation is required. Um, there, are, there are farmers in people's backyards growing food, but they don't have enough customers sometimes. So this, that could really help. Um, another, another is uh, a shift to value lands differently. Um, and I talked about that um, previously. Um, uh, policies that um, promote diversification um, that are not just for the select number of commodities, uh, like I mentioned, more local foods, specifically also to our schools, institutions, hospitals, nursing homes, company cafeterias, um, those policies that also value ecosystems and, the, and their practices. Um, the, the crop insurance issue, um, let's have crop insurance for all crops and livestock at similar levels, not just the top five. Um, and uh, investment in infrastructure to incentivize farmers to diversify. So like uh, machinery at our local ag co-ops, um, regional that can be shared, regional distribution, aggregation of products, um, local storage that holds grains, and, and having more processing facilities across um, the country um, for grains outside of um, corn, soybeans, and wheat, for example. And I also, and I don't know if this um, chimes in with the credit portion of the farm bill, but we need more flexible ag finance that understands these fluctuations of like a, a diverse crop rotation, for example, and the need for the integration of livestock on the land. Um, that's, uh, it's an understanding that regenerative agriculture kind of requires a long game or, or a long-term investment, um, and it's, it's not just uh, short-term uh, returns. So the um, you know regular banking structures, rural banks today, they require an annual return um, that is the same every year based on you know interest rates. Um, but a, a longer rotations, longer crop rotations, um, adding livestock, just a more diverse agriculture system requires kind of some rethinking of that ag finance model. And um, also this um, kind of a uh, investment in that seed research that I mentioned earlier. We could potentially grow competitive oats here in Iowa again. We could grow competitive um, kernza um, and small, other small grains. Um, we need that research um, behind us to, to, to grow that. And also to disincentivize practices like corn on corn on corn on corn, which is unbelievably it's legal to do, as well as fertilizer um, applications, specifically from uh, CAFO operations of um, putting fertilizer on whenever you want. It's when it's not even growing. If you can still put fertilizer, nothing's growing in the ground, you can still apply fertilizer, um, specifically um, manure, and, um, it, and it just sits there for six, seven months before anything is growing in it. Those, those kinds of practices really should be disincentivized, maybe, re maybe requiring paperwork. Um, farmers don't like paperwork, but um, for those of us who are doing things um, right to our, to our ecosystems and to the climate, um, we currently have more paperwork than anybody else. And I, I just think there should be a flip in that, in that system.
That's so such, those, those are some of my top ones. That's such a great point and so many amazing ideas there, um, Wendy, many of which um, I hadn't heard quite that way before. So thank you for that. And I want to give you a chance, Lisa, before we wrap here also to give us your vision of what this farm bill should be supporting and including. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky question for me. I'm a journalist, so I'm not going to, um, you know, go on the record and say this is what should or shouldn't be in the farm bill. Um, but I guess, you know, as a journalist, my responsibility is to um, the American people and to, to help them understand um, where their money is going and how it's being used and whether or not it is actually in their interest. And so I think, you know, from my perspective, it's, it's looking at places in the farm bill um, where we can really ask those questions like, is this in the interests of farmers of, and all the people in this country that, that need to um, need access to healthy food for their families? And um, I, I guess just looking at really prioritizing um, a farm bill that that does those things that you know as wendy said really keeps farmers on the land gets new young farmers on the land because we desperately need them if we're going to produce enough food to to feed people in this country and then you know incentivizes growing healthy food um and in a way that is resilient in the face of a changing climate and um that's going to be what's in the best interest of of everyone in this country You've been listening to A Public Affair, and I've been talking with Lisa Held, senior staff reporter for Civil Eats. Thanks so much for joining me, Lisa. Thank you, Douglas. It was a great conversation, and I've also been talking with Wendy Johnson, owner and operator of Joya Food and Fiber Farm in Iowa. Her recent editorial on the 2023 Farm Bill appeared in Civil Eats magazine. Lisa Held is also a reporter for Civil Eats. We'll post to uh, work from both of you on our podcast. But first of all, thanks, of course, for being here, Wendy. Um, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. If you appreciated this show, please do share the archived version on our website or podcast. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes, and I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, news director Shali Pittman. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WRT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat on today's show. Host Stu Leviton talks with UW-Madison historian Steve Kennerwitz about his book, Citizens of a Stolen Land, A Ho-Chunk History of the 19th Century United States. Une fois qu'il y a ta santé, tu t'allonges sous ton dos.